2: Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The coronavirus pandemic was perhaps the single most global event in history. No country has gone untouched. Today on the show, we have historian and critic Adam Tooze, whose new book, "Shutdown: Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, reckons with the different responses of the world's governments and what they say about how power actually works in the modern world. There's so much that Americans haven't metabolized about our place in the global order, how financial capitalism has adapted to the post-mortgage crash realities, and as Toos puts it, our unbalanced relationship to nature. This is one of those books that teaches us how to see the world, so stay tuned for Forum after this news. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. Columbia University historian and critic Adam Tooze is nothing if not ambitious. In his latest book, "Shutdown: How COVID Shook the World's Economy, he aimed to trace the interaction in the economic sphere at different levels all across the world, from main streets to central banks, from families to factories, from favelas to traders. And indeed he has, synthesizing a vast amount of information from dozens of countries to make sense, not just of the pandemic, but of nation states differing responses to COVID. Could democracies protect their people? How would supposedly wooden authoritarian regimes respond to a fast moving situation? Recall that in the very beginning, Wuhan seemed like it might be the Chinese Communist Party's Chernobyl, the beginning of the end. That's not how it went down, but what did happen in the US, Europe, and other places is equally as surprising. COVID may be what inaugurates a new era of sociopolitical thought as the neoliberalism that defined the past half century came up so short. But what will replace it? Here to expand our minds and horizons, we want to welcome Adam Tooze to the show. It's a real, real pleasure to have you here.
3: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on.
2: Uh, For me, you know, a big part of the Toozean worldview is a reconfiguration of how to think about American power. So I just want to ask just at the beginning here, what don't Americans understand about our own power in the world, both its geopolitical limits and its financial weight?
3: Um, I mean, I think it would, be, it would be presumptuous of me to comment too much on what folks don't understand. I'm uncomfortable doing that. But um, what I think we have to understand is that, you know, whatever the the, the craziness in American politics at home there is an entanglement of the world with the United States, which is is very durable, very powerful, and in two crises back-to-back back now in 2008 and 2020, um, was just um, you know, pushed extraordinarily to the fore. And that is the fact that the America, American dollar, the, the national currency of the US, serves effectively as the common commercial financial currency of much of the world, much of the world economy outside of China, that is. And, and that means that in moments of crisis, um, the demands on the dollar system, to put it kind of rather generally, become really quite acute. And the uh, the American central bank, the Fed, acts whether it likes it or not, uh, and whether folks are aware of it or not, as the de facto central bank of of, of the world. That certainly is the aspect of American power that's really at the centre of the the shutdown book. I mean current events in Afghanistan and and other revelations about General Milley and so on have, have pointed us to the other, I think, enduring pillar of American power, which is just simply the huge overmatch of the American military force. Yeah. which And those two elements are sort of enduring. The question is what, what any longer holds them together? And I think that's the truly alarming thing. The more we dig into what happened last year, the more, the more alarming that question becomes.
2: So let's talk about the role that the Fed did play, because, you know, we uh, oftentimes i thinking about the American response. We might think about the failures of the CDC. We might think about our sort of fractious relationship with the WHO. We might think about just, you know, the, the, the Trump administration's overall sort of bluster and, uh, and and failures. But the role that the Fed played Kind of, I mean, just to put it maybe slightly hyperbolically, kind of save the world economy. So can you tell us sort of try and explain it to us kind of step by step what went wrong in the U.S. Treasuries market and then what did the Fed do?
3: Yeah, so so there are three types of sort of investment that really matter for big money. And, and it's, it's kind of the, the rather head turning inversion of perspective that you've got to arrive at to think about this so if you're in the business of managing a pension fund your problem is not that you don't have funds the problem is where to put them and, th- and there are three different places you can basically put them you can put them in equities the stuff that hogs the headlines in most financial reporting you know shares in apple and so on that that's an incredibly risky thing to do because those companies fortunes vary enormously and you can put them in something very sort of behind the scenes which is corporate debt that's a little risky because corporations can go absolute, can actually go bankrupt. So the sort of asset which very large scale asset managers tend to hold in really huge quantities, trillions of dollars, are government debt. And we might not think necessarily of American government debt as the most secure thing to hold in the world. And it isn't like you know, Swiss government debt or German government debt has a higher rating. the thing about US government debt is it's a giant market. So about $21 trillion held by private investors. And that means there's a market for this stuff, which is so large that you as an investor, even a big one can basically count on being able to sell huge quantities, billions of dollars in a day, at whatever the going price is. So what you do doesn't affect the overall picture. And that's the assumption, the really core assumption of the entire global financial system that broke down in March. Not only were Treasury prices moving in the wrong direction, so they were going down as well as shares, as equities, which doesn't normally happen or hasn't happened in recent decades, which means that people were running out of both equities and Treasuries. But even more worryingly, if you wanted to do that deed, that, that deal of selling you know, three or four billion of them to get to cash to, for instance, pay out the investors in your fund who wanted their money back and you didn't want to sell shares because they were tumbling in price so much, you found there wasn't a buyer even for treasuries. Mm -hmm. And that shakes the entire financial system because the portfolios, the really big ones, are based on having risky equities balanced by treasuries, which are treated as essentially interest-bearing cash because you can always sell them. And in the second and third week of March of 2020, that assumption broke down. And that's a more fundamental rupture than anything we saw even in 2008.
2: So what does the Fed then have to do? You know, the the seemingly endless liquidity is gone. People can't uh, sell their their treasuries. And, And the Fed, did it have the power to actually fix this?
3: Yes, it does. I mean, it's worth it. And just to double down on this point, if you tell people, you know, when I give lectures to to investors or whatever, you always think I'm going to bore them with details about this because they must know all about it. (laughs) As soon as you start talking about it, they start reliving their trauma of those weeks. And because for people like that, it's really like discovering that the banknote in your hand is not actually a banknote anymore. You know, and so I was telling one guy in Hong Kong this story and he said, yeah, yeah March 17th, I tried to sell two billion dollars and I couldn't. And I reeled out of my skyscraper, you know, and looked up at the apartment building I live in. And I thought to myself, if I couldn't sell two billion dollars worth of treasuries, how am I going to sell my apartment? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> because if the treasury's not liquid, your Hong Kong apartment definitely isn't liquid uh-huh. and your mortgage isn't. So So it's that kind of a shock. It's really vertiginous, like the ground fell out beneath people. And so the the way you stabilize this, well, first of all, what the the Fed did is, you know, it's rather technical stuff. It's called repo market intervention is is what they did was they made it super cheap for private investors to buy treasuries, um, which then helps, right? Because you want to put a private buyer into this pool of people all trying to sell at once. And when that didn't work as if it wasn't as effective as they'd hoped. Really, in the third week of March, they basically start buying treasuries themselves because everyone wants to sell. They need to be the buyer of last resort. And by the end of March, they're buying a million dollars a second um, in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They go up to over $80 billion in the hottest days. They buy 5% of this market in a matter of weeks. So this this is the thing which is supposed to, you know stabilized the entire system now has got these massive support wheels you know propping it up on each side from from the fed
2: wow and it's fascinating to contrast the scale of that response with the sort of other things that we were doing right we were playing small ball on trying to build up testing capacity we were putting some billions of dollars into vaccine development but not billions of dollars a day <laughs> we were putting some billions overall how do you make sense of that kind of scale mismatch between sort of what the fed did and what like sort of the rest of this U.S. governmental apparatus was able to accomplish.
3: It's, it's absolutely dizzying. And I do think that the big message of 2020 is scale mismatch, right? <laughs> in all sorts of different scales, timeline scales. We, you know, we, we were focused, many of us, on the climate crisis, for instance, which operates in terms of years and decades. And this thing was coming at the, in the speeds of you know, days and and weeks, I don't need to tell you, you've been, you know, preeminent in collecting the data on this. And you you know, that the the speed with which this thing moves. Uh, um, It's important to say, though, that this isn't money in the sense of congressional appropriation type money. This is a balance sheet reshuffle. So what you do is that the Fed buys um, the treasuries and issues banks that it buys them off. But of course, the banks don't actually want the cash. They just keep this in a reserve deposit at the the Fed. So the reason they can do this on this gigantic scale is the TT's electronic transactions within a space, which is basically like a closed ecosystem, and you're shuffling balances around and risks around. Now, doing that is all important. And if you don't do it, the whole thing could come down. But provided you do do it quickly enough, the whole thing stays up. So it's as though the sort of Jenga tower stays up, right? You pull the thing out, you plonk it on the top, and the whole thing remains stable. Um, That's very different from Congress saying, look, we need $2 trillion, new money, upfront to be paid to desperate households that are suffering unemployment, or we need to appropriate. And then you're absolutely right. And it's still the case, like, you know, staring the continuing pandemic in the face, we can't somehow muster Between all of the countries of the world, the 50 to 100 billion that will be necessary to vaccinate the world quickly. So this disproportion is absolutely real. And it's one of the central themes of this book is there's one space where we appear to be moving at the speed, intensity and scale that might be necessary to meet the challenges of the Anthropocene of this massively destabilized world that we live in. And then the rest seems to sort of drag along at a pace that just doesn't reflect the urgency of the moment.
2: You know, and one other factor in what, or one other consequence of what the Fed did, that I just want to get onto the table before we go into the break, is just that it supercharged the way that this intervention works, ended up supercharging the wealth of the most elite people uh, in the world. I think in your your book you say worldwide the wealth of billionaires rose by one point nine trillion dollars in twenty twenty, with five hundred and sixty billion dollars of that benefiting America's wealthiest people.
3: Yeah, this is the sort of ultimate perversity of all of this is that these channels are as well oiled as they are, because this is a super elite group shuffling its own balance sheet around, basically. Um, And and yet we have to rely on this. And we don't really, under current structural circumstances, have any alternative but to rely on this as the mechanism, you know, the first measure, the first line of defence against destabilisation. So But the effect is, exactly as you say, to continuously replicate this, which is why the kind of Reddit dudes were sort of the heroes of the moment because they grasped that if you took your stimulus check and plonked it into this market, you were actually playing in the big casino.
2: Yeah. We're talking about global economics and COVID with Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia, director of the European Institute and author of the new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. He's also the author of The Excellent Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about global economics and COVID with Adam Tews. He is the author of the new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And we do want to hear from you if you want to get in on this conversation. What questions do you have about the book? How did COVID change your view of other countries, China, Germany, Vietnam, Brazil, or even how it changed your view of the U.S.? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Adam Tews, I think one of the other striking features of 2020 was that the least democratic institutions seem to function much better. So in the U.S., the Fed, not a democratic institution, is actually working well. And of course, in China, the Chinese Communist Party ends up doing some remarkable things both to stave off the virus and then restart the economy i want to turn a little bit to china here just so you can kind of describe for people what the chinese government actually did because it feels like the second the the virus hits the u.s people completely forget what happened in china so i thought maybe you could just walk us through that 2020 timeline of what was going on in china
3: yeah i'd love to come back to the broader democracy authoritarianism point if we may in a second but
2: absolutely
3: let's talk about china and i do think that is you're completely right that the one of the, the disasters, really, of this entire moment is that what was going on in China in January and February was sort of exoticised. Right? It was it, it, it should have been a test run. We should have watched it with fascination and co- extreme concentration and drawn conclusions immediately for what we needed to do in cities like New York, L.A., London. Um, concretely, what we needed to do was convene a big meeting to shut down um uh, Global air travel, you know, and that needed to be the central agenda item. And if Beijing was doing that with regard to Wuhan, then we definitely needed to do that for Tokyo, London, New York, LA, uh, and we didn't. And and there's no doubt that, as it were, this starts as an internal Chinese problem. I mean, we, there's, there's no getting away from the fact that the Chinese built after SARS a reporting system that they thought would enable them to track the development of these kind of diseases and it's an awesome governmental problem if you think about it because china's the size of south america north america and europe put together and they're (laughs) trying to run the entire thing from say for sake of argument london approximately in terms of geographic location and the question is can they get reliable reports from what's going on in buenos aires you know and it takes a while and there are a series of layers in between and the, the local party boss this bad news into the political cycle that's really intense in early, early in the year, every year, we tend to think of it, you know, Chinese politics as kind of rubber stamp politics. But in fact, for the players of the rubber stamp politics, it's intensely serious. So they really didn't want this distraction. And as a result, there was a total disaster. And if the clock had stopped at the end of February, you would have said that this was the worst shock, the most serious derailment of governance in China since the beginning of the reform period in the 80s, right? Yes. It was a total failure of their promise. They, they clearly, you know, they, they, they don't even make any bones about not respecting human rights in the sense that we regard individual liberal human rights. But the Chinese regime makes a very serious promise to guarantee, if you like, public security, public health and and the Elimination of infectious disease in China of all places, which, you know, historically has been the source of so many major epidemics is one of the great achievements of the regime and Chinese people as much as anyone else in the world cares about medicine and their personal health. So for the regime to fail on this score was a total disaster. And then they triggered it's not really fair to say they ordered it, but they triggered a collective shutdown in this giant country that by the middle of February was producing a major economic and social crisis. And again, you know, when we think of China today, we think Shanghai, affluence, you know, extraordinarily rich people. But 600 million Chinese, as their own prime minister pointed out in the middle of the crisis, still live on incomes which are by any definition, you know, really low income, indeed poverty levels. And those people are in the informal economy. They're migrants more or less officially registered. They, they work on service sectors in, in small shops and businesses. And all of those, like everywhere else, were polaxed by the shutdown, they think they had over 20%, maybe as high as 25% unemployment in China by the end of February, early March. This is, of course, covered up by the regime as best it can. And because they have achieved containment of the virus in Wuhan and Hubei, they can actually begin the process of restarting. But to repeat, if the the clock had stopped, and the West had, as it were, done its job, we'd say we had performed at the level of South Korea, then this would have been a, a huge blow to the authority of the Chinese regime. Instead, You know, by May, Beijing is looking at a great historic propaganda triumph. Yeah.
2: And, you know, when we think about them containing the virus, it then set off its own set of problems, which actually seemed like it might be even more dangerous within the Chinese context of having shut down so much of the economy. And then they're able to I mean, the other kind of miraculous thing is they're able to actually just kind of fire things back up and then end up with an economy that's more or less uh, uh, still on fire by the end of the year.
3: Yes, I think that that pivot capacity, I mean, what, you know, I bulk a little bit at this distinction, authoritarian democratic, not because we mm-hmm. don't need term to describe the difference, because it's huge. But I think, um, a, we you know, we need to think hard about exactly what sort of democratic failure happened in 2020. But then on the other hand, the regime in China, it clearly works and has the awesome capacity of governance that it does, because of, as it were, the mobilisation at the provincial and at the At the local level. And again, we need to get our scales right, because, you know, provincial in China is the size of California or even larger. The largest provinces are like the size of Germany. Um, And, you know, they have dozens of cities of 10 million inhabitants plus. So, you know, when we say provincial, we're talking very major government capacity at that regional level and then the party has clearly been in the business. And if you dig into this, you'll see very self consciously updating, modernizing, creating a kind of 21st century vision of party cells, party discipline, party mobilization capacity. So when they say, you know, we're declaring people's war on the virus, they obviously don't mean Mao era people's war, but they do have the capacity to trigger you know literally committees of, of dedicated party servants in every major housing project across the country <laughs> um, they can they can instruct villages to just sort of close themselves down and because the you know the Chinese are intentionally localist they have intense uh, ethnic and local uh, patriotisms this happens quite quickly they're only too happy to shut people out from hubei or apparently have an accent that people in the rest of china find disagreeable and so if you show up speaking that accent they lock you out so it's a it's has a hazard. It's- it's an organism with a to use that kind of metaphor, with a with a very high degree of, of reactivity. And yeah. and the and the party triumphs, if you like, by feeding off that and continuously remobilizing it and re-energizing it.
2: Well in the contrast there with what's happening in the US, to come back to this question about the democratic institutions in the US, I mean what was really striking was just this mismatch of state capacity in the US versus China putting the Fed sort of off to the side, like in the in the US, it's like we couldn't even count the cases and there they could suppress them. <laughs> you know, it was a, a, an incredible moment of realization that American power had such limits, not just outside the border, but inside the border, how, how our federal system uh, works extremely well in some capacities, but also, uh, and this is continuing to be the case throughout the pandemic, uh, the way that we distribute power across the country to states and local officials also means that we're distributing I- information gathering capabilities, that we're distributing the actual execution of federal plans and implementation of all these plans. And that state capacity is pretty bad in a lot of places. And so I think this the, the, the entire idea of having to modernize not just the federal government, but also all these smaller um, municipalities and county governments. I mean, that seems to be one of the things that you're kind of driving at in this book that like, does the US state capacity, not just federal, but the entire apparatus, can it actually meet the problems of this century?
3: I think that's a huge question. And, and I do indeed end by, by asking whether, in a sense, the US nation state as an overall structure is potentially a busted flush. Um, which then raises, as we've seen with General Milley's revelations, some very serious questions about what those pillars of massive, globally relevant power—you know, who or what cont- controls them and who exercises countervailing force there. But, but you know, you've written brilliantly about this. Um, you know, after all, we now have you know the Biden administration, and by the lights of you know democratic voters and progressives, like competent people in charge. And we still have, you know, an extremely severe pandemic in large parts of this country. Um, And and it's very difficult for, uh, uh, you know, progressively technocratically minded science believing administration in Washington to ensure that things go right in Florida or Tennessee or Kentucky. Right. Um, You know, and under the Trump administration, living in a state like New York or presumably in California, I know that there was a sort of... um, you know, that There's a comfort to that. With a degree of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, states' rights all of a sudden seem like an absolutely excellent idea, um, and I do think this is an open question for progressives, as it were. You know, is our interest in aggregating this profoundly fissured society and political culture into a more potent nation state, or, or not? Frankly, because it's a gamble either way, and it depends rather who's in control of the levers of power in Washington at certain moments. And with regard to finance, of course, as we were just saying before the break, you know, there we see a system anchored in the very real interests of massive money aggregated, broadly speaking, on the two coasts of the US uh, and having a functional apparatus, the Fed that grows out of that, that then acts on a global scale, which is the appropriate scale for the dollar system. And we have the American military, which I do think we increasingly need to ask questions about, because it was, you know, over Afghanistan, over domestic civil dis- disorder, and now over nuclear weapons, there are serious issues in the command chain there.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then in the in the, as it were, the, the tissue of American society, which I think now, you know, one of the labels we have for that is infrastructure. We used to talk about, I think, healthcare used to stand for this question. Now, increasingly, I think, in the light of the climate crisis, it's infrastructure though. How how is that going to be articulated? And is the national framework really the appropriate context in which to think of solutions at all? And I was left at the end of this and not as a European and and I'm not an American citizen and living through the experience of 20. I never thought I would be that close to a constitutional crisis of that severity. I mean, I saw the end of communism in East Germany close up, but from the outside but I have not ever experienced just the indigenous uncertainty that we had here, you know, after the election as to whether the results would actually be respected.
2: That's right. You know, when we talk about these subnational actors, you know, that you put it in the book, sort of the polite way of talking about, you know, your Californias, your New Yorks, but also your Texases and and Floridas. One of the things we don't have is any, and this is a listener, Robin uh, comments this, is, is it realistic or even meaningful to consider those subnational powers without a power comparable within the state to something like the dollar, right? Like what do we actually meaningfully have if we don't have a military We don't have a a dollar system, but we do have this incredible innovation engine. We have um, obviously tons of wealthy people. Like, how should we think about the political salience of California?
3: Well, I think that's a really great question. And and for me, then, as somebody whose heart lies in the EU project, that's where I go. And I think, well, in that sense, California is a little bit like France in the Eurozone system. The French don't control their own currency either. And the critical thing, then, is what is the stance of your central bank? And if you have a central bank as proactive, if you like, as expansive and expansionary as the Fed has been in recent years, not controlling your own currency is not quite the fetter that it becomes if you don't. Um, So that's, as it were, one part of the answer. Clearly, it's true that that California or New York are not financial and monetary sovereigns. And, of course, they're then hampered by the legacy of fiscal politics of the 1970s, budget balance, you know, uh, which further constrained that sovereignty. Um, but I agree with you that one of the ways one could think about this would be then at the level of technology policy, industrial policy, where American states have remarkable latitude, which is not granted to European states, right? Because the Europeans see interstate competition coming and ban it. Whereas in the US, you can have these ruinous competitions between states for industrial investment and the other area is regulation and california has been preeminent in this i mean california changed the entire global car market in the 70s with the regulations that you pushed and that can you continue to serve as a as a backstop against trumpian deregulation because it's clear that the big auto firms really would in some senses prefer to be in a coalition with clear regulatory future prospects and california acts as an anchor for that
2: yeah you know when you talk about industrial policy it's something that's come up a lot on the show recently in part because the u.s seems like an undisciplined actor in its competition particularly with china in the sense that we sort of declare them an enemy but then the actual domestic development that needs to happen if we really are in some sort of global competition with china and other rising powers we, we are not actually doing that work. Like if you were going to think about how to set industrial policy for the U.S., and let's take the example, of say, semiconductors or chip making, you set that industrial policy. What do you what do you actually put into place so that the U.S. doesn't just enter a trade war, but also actually does what I think of as kind of more European style industrial policy inside the country?
3: I mean, I completely agree. I mean, this has been a debate going on on progressive circles for some time, right, that there is the trade off that you have to accept for large scale infrastructure expenditure, that it's going to be clad in the rhetoric and ideology of national competition and indeed military competition with China you know, is is a new Cold War, the price we have to pay for some sort of concerted national reconstruction effort within the united states and the truly miserable discovery of this year is that how few how few bucks you get for your bang if you like <laughs> i mean you know you you have these as exactly as you say fulsome declarations that uh you know america is now in a historic competition with china and then then you look at you know what was it the endless frontier act which was supposed to be this sort of you know space race style commitment to large-scale research, and it's a couple of $10 billion spread over the best part of a decade. I mean, it's it's peanuts um, compared to what you might expect to come out of this. So there's a sense in which, as it were, the American political system in Washington can agree on the shape and the form and the rhetoric of confrontation with China. But then when it comes to actually implementing the domestic policy counterpart to that, that you would follow through on the you know the very familiar obstacles immediately arise and so you kind of end up in something that's if not exactly the worst of all worlds but it's certainly it's certainly not that trade-off right where out of as it were the definition of an enemy there's a lot of political theory that would suggest that it's by way of the definition of an enemy that you concert a polity in particular a republic actually and you can put concert a republic around that common enemy and as we saw in the Trump era, it wasn't even obvious whether America's politics at this moment is capable of that. Think about Russia and how it figures. So it's very strange in that respect. The one thing that can be agreed on, it seems, are negative measures against China. That, that mm-hmm. seems it's easy. But even there, you know, what's really fascinating is Wall Street's not buying it. It really, really isn't buying it. The serious big money is... Open-minded, not just about the Cold War per se, but what side they're on in the Cold War. I mean, the biggest, like you know, fanciest private equity hedge fund types will literally tell you that the thing that's different about this Cold War is you can take a bet on both sides. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's and they say it out loud, you know. So this isn't McCarthy because if you, you know, if you said that out loud, then you would. You know, and Barr, the, the Trump's attorney general was pushing in a direction that I think, you know, was going to silence that kind of talk. But it's right here right now. I mean, you, you know, and you have to read the pages of The Wall Street Journal and the FT to see this conversation being had out by George Soros, who is an old cold warrior, and BlackRock, who was saying we're all underweight Chinese equities at this moment.
2: We're talking about global economics, China, COVID, and a lot more with Adam Toos, professor of history at Columbia, the director of the European Institute and author of the new book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. What questions do you have for Adam Toos? How did COVID change your view of other countries, whether it be China, the U.S., Germany, Vietnam? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866 866-733- 733 you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. i'm alexis madrigal welcome back to forum we're talking with adam Tooze, columbia history professor about his new book shutdown how covid shook the world's economy and we have a uh comment that i wanted you to be able to answer bill writes the fed bought trillions of dollars of bonds with money that was printed it doesn't matter that the money was held as balances at the fed it was still created out of thin air we will see the inflation impact of all these trillions of dollars soon now to me this seems like the thinking of the last 50 years correct and I wanted you to sort of maybe be able to take this comment and say here's how the Fed is now talking and thinking about inflation.
3: Yeah so I mean, to start with I think it's worth accepting that you know that is absolutely common sense and the fact that that is so far not true and has not proven true in Japan really since the late 1990s and in the West since 2008 is one of the truly head-scratching puzzling phenomena of the present day because common sense would dictate exactly as your listener suggested that if you do create this kind of huge surge in money it must in the end translate at some point into inflation and the sort of inflation we have seen quite a lot of is it turns out in asset prices rather than in real things. So. In, in job in wages in the prices of goods produced and so on. So we have not seen classic inflation so far. So that suggests that, in fact, quite a lot of this money just gets absorbed passively, if you like, into the financial system. The anxiety has become quite acute in the last year or so because we have seen price spikes for all sorts of things. There was a real estate bubble that, which is ongoing still, and in some definitely places-
2: still ongoing here. <laughs> yeah,
3: but I mean, obviously, in, in California, there are major structural factors in there, in play there too. And then we've seen these anomalous spikes in things like lumber or secondhand cars, used cars, because there weren't enough chips to make new cars, so people ended up buying last year's model. Those kind of effects and the big argument. And again, it's a you know, it's a very smart people are on two sides of this argument. Like, is this the beginning of that acceleration that your listeners suggests is coming down the pike? Um, so and it's really worth saying this, like there are a substantial community of people who live under the shadow of this fear. And, and they look at history and they look at these numbers and say, you know, it's got to be some, something's got to give.
2: Right. It's and then, 2006. Looking at mortgage-backed securities for them.
3: Exactly. I mean, that's not a. This is not a. This is not a. You know, foolish position to adopt in any way. Um, and on the other hand, the the big money right now, and the experts of the Fed and the ECB and other, all the other major um, central banks in the world saying, you know, cool it. This stuff is going to sit absorbed in the same way as the previous major expansions of bank reserves uh, were absorbed after 2008. And we think this is transient, and we do not see these spikes in inflation are transient, and we do not see a future in which not just prices go up, but, and this is the crucial thing, the distinction between a price increase and an inflation is not just that prices go up once, but that they continually go up. Right. So what the central bankers are really worried about is any sign that so-called inflationary expectations have become unanchored. If you if you listen to the financial news and you hear that phrase, that's what they're talking about. This sense that one off increases in prices are going to become permanent and regular. That's inflation expectations becoming unanchored. And so far, there isn't the sense that that's happened. Is that- but we're in uncharted waters. I mean, got to yeah. say, like I put my historian's hat back on. I am I'm, I, I am firmly committed to the idea of radical change and a sort of protean ongoing disintegration of existing familiar law-like relationships. I'm not going to say that I'm certain 100% and that it's foolish, you know, to insist on this idea of inflation, but we haven't seen it. And frankly, if we did, this is the other question, you know, if inflation expectations inched up to three or 4%, would it be the end of the world? No, in most respects, not, right? We could live with that. And in some ways, it would really help with debt, It would lever down progressively the real value of debt. What the people who are anxious about this are anxious about is that this goes to 15, 20 percent per annum and then it keeps on accelerating and we end up in Weimar or Zimbabwe or Venezuela. And that, I think, is extremely unlikely because one thing we really do know how to do is not stop deflation price falls when that's happening. That turns out to be really tricky. But we are pretty confident that if inflation accelerates, we know how to rein it in.
2: And that's just raising interest rates.
3: Yeah, exactly. And if necessary, reversing the fiscal balance, increasing taxes and cutting government spending. That'll do as well.
2: Um, Let's bring in Hans, who has a question. Let me make sure I've got him there. Hans in San Francisco has a question about your Hong Kong investor.
0: Hey, uh, guys, thanks for a uh, really good conversation here. I want to go back to your um, Hong Kong uh, high-rise investor who couldn't unload his $2 billion worth of paper um, back in March of 20, um, <clears throat> when the Fed uh, decided to open up and buy, uh, you know, MBSs and and Treasuries, um, what did the Hong Konger receive in exchange? And at what point does the Fed has, have to start shipping gold bars or something like that? And I'll take my answer off here. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Hans.
3: So, so, so the way it, I think it would work is, is it's an indirect form of relief, right? Because it's it's not as it were that the Fed is going to immediately intervene in the Hong Kong market, but what will happen is that because the Fed is sort of exerting a giant sucking sound on the entire Treasury market in New York, that as it were frees up demand everywhere else in the world. The Fed, in fact, did pump dollars out into the world economy. It used these things called swap lines, which it first mobilized in two thousand and seven eight, which are a way of providing other central banks around the world dollars in exchange for their currencies and it even went so far as to open up what's called a a repo window for other central banks and this was we think intended for China so that China wouldn't have to sell the treasuries that it holds, but could enter into a repurchase agreement in other words sort of give the treasury to the Fed for a while on the promise it would buy it back after a while which provides so borrow on the basis of the treasuries uh, as a form of collateral if you like Um, So it did all of those measures, and it's an ecological argument, right? You don't specifically target particular people trying to sell necessarily. What you do is you just inundate the entire system with dollars, starting with the strategic points in New York, which is one of the reasons why this has this effect of entrenching existing power structures and entrenching existing inequalities of wealth. And that then literally trickles down to the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating things about this book is that, you know, The 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 answer is sort of right there in the metaphor of liquidity, like basically by greasing this, uh, the the pipes of the financial infrastructure, it actually lets everything flow around the world more effectively, which ends up sort of counterintuitively helping a lot of the emerging markets uh, in a way that I think maybe it's quite surprising to us, who are used to thinking of sort of American financial power being used against uh, countries at sort of the economic periphery.
3: I mean, it can be, of course. And, and we saw, after all, very aggressive sanctioning, um, say, of Iran in, in this period. And, and, and the situation of Afghanistan is critical at this very moment for precisely that reason. So this leverage that America exercises by way of the dollar is very real. And it's so real that in places like Europe now. It is encouraging incredibly serious conversation about how they escape from this. But if you are within the dollar system and the Fed opens the taps, um, it does indeed uh, grease the wheels around the entire world. Many of us started 2020 in February, as we could see the shockwave rolling towards the entire world economy, terrified about the implications for emerging markets and low-income countries. Many of us sort of campaigned on this issue of, Something needed to be done by way of the IMF was the idea. The Trump administration, broadly speaking, blocked that, but the Fed's actions meant that re, I mean well-positioned borrowers and the more sophisticated emerging markets now are very sophisticated in the way in which they run their relations with global finance, were in fact able to access credit from the summer of 2020. And the year ended with countries like Peru being able to borrow. For a hundred years, the Peru issued a century bond at interest rates which were remarkably low three, four, five percent. So that didn't turn out to be the problem. This is one of the messages of the book: is that finance is, in a sense, the easy bit. And this is, you know, the humbling lesson taught by the pandemic: is if it's true that we can afford anything, we can actually do. The problem is in the doing, um, whether it's the vaccines or whether it's in concerted social distancing. Um, you know, or other types of shutdown, shutdown measures or agreeing on how we're going to educate our children and young people remotely. If we can agree to do it and actually put in place the technical infrastructure to deliver, we can surely find ways, it becomes a purely technical matter, of how to pay for it. Yeah. But simply saying, well, we've got all this capacity to pay doesn't get you to the solution. And, and that, unfortunately, is the lesson. So Peru, that country that could borrow for 100 years at a few percentage points' of interest, Nevertheless, in Lima, its capital, a 10 million strong city with a 70 percent informality rate, and the labor force suffered one of the worst pandemics in the entire world.
2: I want to talk a little bit uh, with Jan from Gilroy about what to do about the the enhancement of the wealth of the very wealthy through this period. Uh, go ahead, Jan. Hi.
4: Uh, thanks for a great program. Yeah, so I uh, know that the wealth gap increased tremendously. It was already horrible here in the United States. And uh, so many people were impacted negatively by COVID. So what is our solution to um, to decreasing the wealth gap here in the United States?
2: Thank you, Jan. I mean, I know one answer you'd get from like Emmanuel Sayas at Berkeley or something like that would be a wealth tax. But then there's the how of actually Getting there, and then how precisely that wealth tax works, uh, is uh, I, I think the, the key sticking point.
3: I agree. I mean, it's very difficult to see our way around. If if the I think there are various types of problem here. Right. One is, as it were, the extreme lack of wealth are amongst the most disadvantaged uh, elements of American society, and the the total lack of wealth in the African American community um, is a scandal, and it's an ongoing scandal. And there are a set of as it were remedies that one could imagine for that kind of problem which might revolve around various types of uh, housing finance that's where the reparations debate kicks off whatever view you take of that but it is grounded in that sense that there is as it were a problem here in the wealth gap consisting in the exclusion of a large part of society from from uh, any access to wealth at the top end I see no alternative to taxation. There really isn't any obvious way of of curbing that. Um, it has to take the form of some sort of redistribution. I mean, it's it's very difficult to see how else you you get at that. And it, and it could take the form of income taxes. Um, you know, because you can get around some of the issues um, uh, which are very complex in, in in taxing wealth because the definition of wealth is so difficult. If you just focus on income instead. To do that, however, you have to up arm the IRS and you have to, as it were, just cut through the, the mesh of, of essentially obfuscation that the tax code provides and which is exploited by those equipped with the best lawyers and the best accountants um, to avoid paying tax. But one way or the other, I don't see any alternative to it. And the spectacle of you know the billionaires flying off to space in their vanity space projects in the course of this year. It's just so grotesque. I mean, China provides us with one model. Um, but, um, you know, there's a bit of me that thinks that when they come down to earth, it would be quite nice if they discovered that they have been expropriated. But that's obviously not on the on the cards. But but that is certainly, you know, one out which the Chinese regime has gone down, which is to say, look, we're going to regulate you and don't count on us to play fair and don't count on us to play... You know in a way which will provide you with the protections of the law because you know perfectly well that that's not the kind of regime we are and they basically called the bluff of their billionaires and said look this is for real so a handover they have various forms now of forced philanthropy regulation would help um, but the thing about impo- in, imposing massive regulation in the united states on big tech which is not a measure i'm against but one would have to think very carefully about the wealth impact on that, not as it were on the top 1% or top fraction of 1% where one could easily imagine this being a positive mood, but very substantial fractions of people's retirement portfolios in what is more fairly described as the middle class would be at stake in that kind of in that kind of aggressive
2: uh, regulationary move if we went down the Chinese route. Because Again, the big tech companies have become such a huge part of just like the stock indexes that are purchased by the various uh, pension
3: funds. And the retirement funds. And so this isn't an argument against acting it. This is a kind of blackmail argument that one should resist, but we should be clear about, as it were, the complexity of negotiating that transition and the countervailing forces that one would face. But yes, I don't see I can't I I, I know as it were Syers and Piketty are easily dismissed as utopian and at some level it does have an utopian flavour, but they are saying the right thing. That that is the way to move on this. Um, and I simply don't understand, you know, on a normative basis, why anyone could claim that the sort of wealth that's accumulated by folks like Bezos now doesn't provide any meaningful incentive, right? There's no, there's no foundation for this in a sort of simple story about, you know, private property as a driver of initiative and entrepreneurship. No one needs to be 100, you know, worth hundred right. billion million. It's absurd. Like, so so I, I'm afraid I don't have terribly original answers to this question, but those seem to be the right way to move.
2: Yeah. You know, one the money is one piece. The I, I, the other big piece is sort of getting the will to address the really big questions, which I think, you know, your other book that you're working on right now is about climate politics and, and economics. And in this book, you have uh, just one sentence, which I wanted you to sort of expand on. You say, to meet the environmental challenges ahead, we have to take the innovative... Potential of science and technology revealed by the first centuries of modernization, and actually unlock and fully mobilize it at a global level. So, what would that mean for you to to do that?
3: Well, I mean, if there's anything positive we can rescue from this horrible period, it is that 18 months ago, I vividly remember sitting with you know STEM science colleagues from Columbia in socially distant circumstances, and then telling us in this depressing fashion that we'd never, ever, 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 ever developed a coronavirus vaccine. And now we have a whole suite of them, all sorts of different development paths worked out. None of them seem to be dangerous. They're varying levels of efficacy, but as you've written so well, Alexis, they keep us out of hospital, which is the crucial thing. And this is a miracle. And it's not just one, and it doesn't depend on the exceptionalism of American science. Russia developed a highly effective vaccine by, by every account, and the Chinese have several which aren't quite as good, but nevertheless work. So, and that's at a kind of medium level of effort, I would say. I mean, warp speed in the end, I think the last time I looked, its budget was about $13 billion, and that got us two you know, really innovative ones. So my fantasy is, let's do that 10 times larger, and let's do it Every year and all the time, there are scientists and have been arguing and campaigning for years that we ought to have a co- uh, as comprehensive a database as we possibly can of all of the likely vi- the viruses which are likely to spawn dangerous mutations. And the last time I looked, they said it was about 250,000 candidates. And the budget for doing that was in the single digit billions. Now that's a really good thing to spend money on. Um, Likewise, you know, we ought to apply the pet food test to energy research. I mean, currently, Americans spend thirty five billion dollars a year on food and treats for dogs and cats. (laughs) Uh, I love my dog. I mean, seriously, (laughs) that's why we do this. But what I don't understand is why the federal government's budget for basic energy research is a single digit billion number. If we collectively spend thirty five billion on dogs and cats. Because if my dog and my cat are going to have a nice future thirty years from now, they need us to have energy solutions. So if you're a Republican and you have always, since you know, the, the sort of honest Republicans since the Bush era have always said, right, okay, this climate problem's real, so we're going to count on capitalism and technology to get us there. So in that case, let's be serious about this. And what I find particularly so I come from a STEM, my family are all STEM scientists, and like I don't understand why we don't simply want much much more of that this is something that's excellent to spend money on lab technicians researchers sophisticated computers and databases bio you know these bio vat systems they grow this stuff in this is you know stuff we should want more of around the choice should be do you want a prison or a lab in your congressional district Basically. take your pick um and And that, to me, is where we need to go. And the fact of the matter is that it's clear that our existing social structure and our existing politics do not fully unlock that awesome potential that's there. And that's what we should focus on. California, in the heyday of the 50s and 60s, with the great public universities acting as the big driver, that, in a sense, is the model. And we need to scale that up.
2: Thank you so much. We've been talking about global economics, China, COVID, wealth, with Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia University and director of the European Institute. He's the author of the new book, Shutdown How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of forum with Mina Kim.